Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The love story between Mughal Emperor Shah Jahan and his wife Arjuman Banu Begum, known to history as Mumtaz Mahal, or the Chosen One of the Palace, is one of the great romances of history. They married 410 years ago. Their marriage lasted 19 years and produced 14 children. It also produced one of the great wonders of the world, the Taj Mahal in Agra, India. Built in exquisite white marble, inlaid with precious stones, arranged in floral arabesques, and inscribed with calligraphy in black stone, the Taj Mahal was commissioned by Emperor Shah Jahan in 1632 as a funerary complex for his beloved wife. It is perhaps the most beautiful building in the world. To discuss the story behind the Taj Mahal, I am joined by Father Michael Calabria. Father Michael is Director of the Centre of Arabic and Islamic Studies and Associate Professor at St. Bonaventure University, New York, and is a Franciscan friar. He holds a PhD in Islamic Studies from the University of Exeter, UK, as well as three master's degrees. He specialises in Islam and Islamic culture, including the Quran, Islamic spirituality, art and architecture, and Christian-Muslim relations. His brand new book, The Language of the Taj Mahal, Islam, Prayer and the Religion of Shah Jahan, has just been published by I.B. Taurus. Michael, it is a real pleasure to welcome you to Not Just the Tudors. Thank you for joining us. I wonder if you can start by introducing us to the Emperor Shah Jahan. It would be my honor and privilege to do that. The person we know as Shah Jahan was born in 1592 in Lahore during the reign of his grandfather Akbar. He was the third son of Prince Salim, who would in time succeed Akbar as the Emperor Jahangir. When Shah Jahan was born, he was named Quorum by his grandfather Akbar, a name which means happy, apparently because Akbar was so delighted by the birth of this new grandson. Quorum's mother was a Hindu Rajput princess, as was his paternal grandmother. So he was a interesting mixture of ethnicities, Chagatay Turk, Mongol, and Rajasthani Rajput. Of all of Jahangir's sons, Quorum would become the most promising prince and quite an effective young soldier and military commander, much more than his two half-brothers, Khusrau and Parvez. It was after Shah Jahan's second successful military campaign in 1617, this one was on the Empire's southern frontier, that Jahangir awarded his son Quorum the title of Shah Jahan, the king of the world is what it means. So there's actually a wonderful painting depicting this occasion that is now in the Royal Collection Trust at Windsor. It's from the chronicle, the Padshanama. And we see this incredible scene where the entire court is assembled, 
Jahangir is up on a balcony, but he has gotten up off of his throne in order to embrace his victorious son, and he lovingly is grasping his son Koram, now titled Shah Jahan. This is the title, the name by which Koram was later known as emperor, and of course how history knows him. That's a wonderful introduction. And you've mentioned there that he is this man of mixed heritage, but the nature of his faith becomes very important to our conversation as we move on and talk about the Taj Mahal. What do we know of his spiritual and intellectual education? It's an excellent question. I've spent quite a bit of time reflecting on this and doing research about it. His early education, both intellectual and spiritual, was managed largely by his grandfather, Akbar. Akbar appointed teachers who clearly shared his religious and spiritual perspectives. That is, they were teachers and scholars, most of whom followed the Sufi path of Islam, especially the Shisti path. And they were proponents of what is called Waqtat al-Wajud, or the oneness of being. This concept holds that there is only one existence, that is, God is the only existent one. Whereas we humans perceive multiplicity in the phenomenal world, true existence, they would hold, belongs to God alone. So according to this concept, every person, every thing, only reflects to a greater or lesser degree the existence of the one, that is, God. So the young Koram would have been introduced to this concept, particularly through the works of Ibn Arabi, the great Sufi sheikh of the 13th century. And of course, he would have read the great classic works of poetry by Rumi, by Hafez, by Jami, Nizami, and Saadi. These were foundational to Mughal education of his time. One of his teachers, Sheikh Sufi, began each lesson with a reading from the letters of Sharafuddin Man, and these letters served as a kind of guidebook for people who wanted to follow the Sufi path. So you can see that his education was heavily steeped in what we call Islamic mysticism, that is Sufism. Shah Jahan would have, as a boy, also become familiar with the great Hindu epics like the Mahabharata and the Ramayana. Akbar had commissioned Persian translations of those epics and had also commissioned paintings to accompany the translations. The young Koram would have also had the opportunity to speak with Portuguese Jesuits. Akbar had invited the Jesuits to court and the Jesuits actually traveled with the royal court. So Akbar is especially known for establishing this principle of what is called suhi kul, that is universal peace. The idea that no individual would be treated prejudicially on the basis of their faith and everyone would live peacefully and comfortably under the protection of the emperor. And certainly the young Koram would have absorbed this during his early education. Gosh, that degree of tolerance was certainly not present in Europe in the same period of time. Precisely, exactly, yes. Now, you mentioned that the young Kuram's education was organized by his grandfather, the Emperor Akbar. What do we know about their relationship? We have considerable evidence that their relationship was indeed quite close, and I think quite beautiful when we reflect on this. Undoubtedly, Akbar had the greatest influence on Kuram's formative years. Akbar sensed that his own son, Prince Salim, that is Shah Jahan's father, was not the best influence on the young boy. Prince Salim was a heavy drinker. So Akbar was very protective of his grandsons, especially Koram, and often kept his grandsons with him. When Salim decided to stage a revolt against Akbar, a revolt which lasted five years, Koram and his brothers were actually with Akbar. So you can see that Koram spent most of his childhood, really, most of those important formative years with his grandfather. We know that when Akbar became ill, it was Koram who refused to leave his grandfather's side, even when his father and his mother insisted. According to one account, he told them 
This is really very heart-touching. He said, as long as there is a breath of life left in my grandfather, there's no possibility of my being separated from him. So it's really quite beautiful when we think about that relationship. He would have been about 13 or 14 years old when Akbar died. So his entire childhood had been spent in Akbar's care and guidance. Even as an adult, after Shah Jahan ascended to the throne himself as emperor, he often remembered his grandfather. We have many paintings that Shah Jahan commissioned depicting his grandfather. There's a beautiful painting now in Paris that shows Shah Jahan as a young prince sitting with his grandfather and Shah Jahan's hands are stretched out to his grandfather. And Akbar is clearly instructing his son. He has his hand held up like he's teaching him. These paintings, I think, provide compelling evidence for Shah Jahan's enduring memory of his beloved grandfather, and I would suggest his enduring influence on Shah Jahan's faith and spirituality. That makes a lot of sense. So it was also, I suppose, around the time that Akbar died, when Khurram, as a young teenager, met the adolescent Persian girl, Ajuman Banu Begum, later known as Mumtaz Mahal. Now, there are conflicting stories about their relationship. It's either depicted as a sort of love match or it's a dynastic union. What's your opinion? I think it's probably a little bit of both. So there's a tradition that the young Khurram met and fell in love with Arjuman at what is called the Mina Bazaar, an event held during the festivities of Nauruz, the Persian New Year. So at this bazaar, the daughters of nobility could interact less formally with eligible young princes. I think this might have been the love at first sight account, and it's entirely believable. You can imagine two young people, both richly attired. There's the excitement of the holiday bazaar and the prospects for a good match. There are fireworks and festivities of all kinds, and then they see one another. So all of the ingredients are there for a magical moment. But it's also clear that this would have been considered a very good match. Arjuman was from the most prominent Persian family at the Mughal court. Both of her grandfathers had immigrated from Persia to the Mughal realm during the reign of Akbar and served in several official capacities. And Arjuman's father, too, was a rising star at the court. Whether they met by chance or if it was a deliberate match or a combination of these, there's no doubt that Arjumand, later Mumtaz Mahal, became Koram's constant companion, his stalwart supporter, the great love of his life and the mother of his 14 children. So given all of this, given that it looked like a good union, why was Ajuman not Khurram's first wife? And when did they marry? Yeah, it's an interesting story, and it gets us into the politics of the period. So after their betrothal, the young couple would have to wait another five years before their marriage was celebrated. And that was because Arjuman's family ran into a bit of political trouble. Her paternal uncle, Muhammad Sharif, was implicated in a plot to assassinate the Emperor Jahangir, that is Shah Jahan's father. Her paternal grandfather, Itimad Daula, also came under suspicion and was temporarily relieved of his office and was arrested. And Arjuman's aunt, Mihrun Nisa, was married to yet another suspected conspirator. So until the dust settled and until they could suss out who was really implicated in this plot, Jahangir thought it was best to postpone the marriage to Arjuman. And instead, he arranged for a political marriage for his son to a woman descended from the Persian Safavid dynasty. Now, in time, Arjaman's family reputation was restored, so much, in fact, that Jahangir winds up marrying Arjaman's aunt, Mihrunanisa, who is then designated Nur Jahan. And then the following year, Shah Jahan was finally permitted to marry Arjaman. It was then when he designated her Mumtaz Mahal, the chosen one of the palace. 
So we're in 1611 by this point when they marry, and some exquisite portraits of both Shah Jahan and Mumtaz Mahal survive. Can you describe them to us? Indeed. I think even to the casual observer, the Mughal aesthetic is one of exceptional refined beauty and luxury. And this applies to Mughal art and architecture, to all media. The paintings of Shah Jahan and Mumtaz are no exception. We have a great number of paintings of Shah Jahan, of course, many depicting the events of his reign. And there are single portraits as well. So it's easy to recognize him. There's a particularly fine portrait, a rather small one from the Cleveland Museum of Art that I use in my book. It gives us a good idea, I think, of what Shah Jahan looked like at the beginning of his reign at around age 36. So instead of the droopy mustache that he wore in his youth, like his father and his grandfather had worn, he now wears a full neatly trimmed beard with a mustache and sideburn curls. He wears double pearl earrings, a necklace of pearls and emeralds with a pendant. On his head, he wears a turban of deep burgundy velvet embroidered with gold and crowned with a bejeweled turban ornament with a feather. It's very handsome indeed. In other large works, his head is usually encircled with a rayed nimbus, and he is often shown holding a jewel in his hand or even a sword. We don't have many portraits that we can absolutely identify as Mumtaz. As with the Ottomans and Safavids, portraits of royal women were not generally made. There are exceptions, of course. One of these paintings is now in the British Library. It comes from an album of paintings assembled by Dara Shiko, who was Mumtaz and Shah Jahan's eldest son. The woman in the painting is richly attired. Her head veil is edged with pearls. She has large pearl earrings, and even the lobes of her ear are rimmed with pearls. She has several strands of pearls around her neck with rubies. All of this indicates that she is a woman of the royal family. She's holding a white narcissus in her hand, and there's another plant, another white narcissus growing from the ground in front of her. White is usually associated with death and mourning. So based on the appearance of those white flowers, as well as the placement of the portrait in the album, we think that this must be Mumtaz. Her son Dada was about 16 when she died, so it was probably Dada reflecting back on his mother and placing that portrait in a very particular place in the album. Now, we know that Shah Jahan Quram hadn't been Prince Salim's firstborn son. But his path to the throne, I suppose, seems to have started around 1622. What happened then? By his late 20s, Shah Jahan had every reason to believe that his succession to the throne was assured. His older brother, Khusrau, had been disgraced for plotting against Jahangir. And his other brother, Parvez, was a heavy drinker, like Jahangir. And Parvez had failed in his military command and had basically been sent away from court for this embarrassment. At some point, however, Shah Jahan began to feel that Jahangir and Nur Jahan, that is Arjaman's aunt, were perhaps plotting to designate one of his half-brothers as heir to the throne. Perhaps they felt that Shah Jahan was becoming too powerful from his military successes. Perhaps he was becoming too popular with the military. And it's also possible that Nur Jahan wanted the next emperor to be someone over whom she could exert some influence. And perhaps she thought that Shah Jahan was too powerful a personality. So Shah Jahan watches as his brother Parvez is promoted in rank and brought back to court. And then he sees Jahangir pardon his brother Khusrau and release him from confinement. Then Shah Jahan's younger brother, Shariar, was wed to a woman named Ladli Begum. She was Nur Jahan's daughter from her first marriage. 
So from Shah Jahan's perspective, these were all troubling signs that his succession was being threatened, especially as he was about to set off on a military campaign that would take him far from the capital. So he wants to eliminate some problems, and one issue is easy to deal with, that is his brother Khusrau. So he asks Jahangir, or rather demands, that Khusrau be placed in his custody during this military campaign. And lo and behold, shortly after Khusrau passes into Shah Jahan's custody, he dies, almost certainly a murder ordered by Shah Jahan. Then things really heat up, because in March of 1622, the Safavid Shah Abbas leads an army against the city of Jahangir. This had been a city under Mughal control. So Shah Jahan is immediately ordered to head to Kandahar with his army. But Shah Jahan, in a letter to his father, expresses some caution. He says, we need to be really prepared for this. We shouldn't rush off in order to engage the Safavids until we can be assured of success. Of course, Shah Jahan is at the same time also worried about his own fate as potential successor. Jahangir takes this resistance from Shah Jahan as audacious effrontery. And he prompt points Shah Jahan's younger brother, Shariyad, as the commander of the Kandahar campaign. And he orders Shah Jahan to remain put. This is the rupture between Shah Jahan and his father. So for the next four years, Shah Jahan, Mumtaz, their children, were political refugees. They just traversed the length and the breadth of the Mughal Empire running with their supporters from the imperial forces that were led by his brother Parvez. It's a tragic story. Khurram, who had once been the favored prince of his father, named Shah Jahan, the king of the world, was now referred to in his father's chronicle simply as Bedaulet, the wretch. His father absolutely refused to even mention his name. In time, Shah Jahan saw that his defeat was inevitable and sought reconciliation with his father. Jahangir's terms were unequivocal. Shah Jahan would remain in exile from court as a governor in the southern part of the empire, and he demanded that Shah Jahan surrender his three sons, Darashiko, Shashuja, and Aurangzeb, to Jahangir, as proof of Shah Jahan's sincerity. One can only imagine how painful that must have been, the heartrending scene, when these three young princes are separated from their parents, from Shah Jahan and Mumtaz, and sent hundreds of miles away. Yes, that must be very painful, all concerned. And yet, from this position of being essentially a political exile and certainly in disfavor, Shah Jahan manages to secure the succession. How did he end up as the ruler of the Mughal Empire? This is an exciting story here, rather dramatic. So as I mentioned, Khusrau, Shah Jahan's older brother, had conveniently died in Shah Jahan's custody. I think that deed really scarred Shah Jahan because there was no immediate reason for him to eliminate Khusrau. Jahangir was still the emperor, and the succession had not yet been determined. But soon after Shah Jahan surrenders his sons to Jahangir, his brother Parvez also dies. But in this case, Parvez dies from his alcoholism. So things were starting to look better for Shah Jahan's succession. But they were far from certain, because there was still the case of Shah Jahan's younger brother, Shariyad, and Nur Jahan, the empress, the wife of Jahangir, was intending to place Shariyad on the throne. But Shah Jahan had an excellent ally still at court, and that was his father-in-law, Asif Khan, Mumtaz's father. And he had remained at Jahangir's court through all of the years when Shah Jahan and Mumtaz were on the run. Jahangir dies en route to Lahore in the fall of 1627, and that's when Asif Khan, Shah Jahan's father-in-law, leaps into action. 
He sends a message to Shah Jahan, who is hundreds of miles away, and tells him to get to Agra as quickly as possible in order to claim the throne. Asif Khan plays his sister, Nur Jahan, under house arrest and then captures Shah Jahan's younger brother, Shariyar. Now, as a temporary measure, Asif Khan puts Shah Jahan's nephew on the throne in Lahore until Shah Jahan can get to Agra. But once Shah Jahan is proclaimed emperor in January of 1628, all other claimants to the throne are promptly executed in Lahore. So that includes Shah Jahan's brother Shariyad, his two nephews, and two cousins. Now that fratricide that we see at the succession of a new ruler was not a rule in the Mughal Empire as it was with the Ottomans. The Ottomans absolutely established it as a rule that once the new sultan ascended to the throne, all male claimants, potential rivals, were absolutely eliminated. Shah Jahan's actions unfortunately set a bad precedent and his son Aurangzeb also followed suit when the time came for Shah Jahan to be succeeded actually deposed from the throne. So it's a very bloody path. Now, in fact, actually, our story is going to be a lot about grief as well as about power and about faith. And to understand part of it, we need to think a little bit about the people around Shah Jahan. So his chief advisor, later his prime minister, Afzal Khan, and his brother, Abdul Haik was a crucial person in Shah Jahan's creation of the Taj Mahal. Could you introduce him, please? Two Persian brothers arrived in the Mughal Empire, Shukrullah and Abdul Haq, or as I call them, the Shirazi brothers, because they hailed from the city of Shiraz. If the Shirazi brothers did not have contacts at the Mughal court prior to their arrival in Hindustan, they were certainly in the right places at the right times because their rises are rather extraordinary. After their arrival, Shukrullah made a very good contact in the city of Burhampur on the southern border of the Mughal Empire. And he enters the service of a royal official and thereafter enters into the circle of Shah Jahan, who is still prince at the time. In time, he will become one of Shah Jahan's most loyal and trusted officials and is given the title of Khan, the superior master. He remained with Shah Jahan during those years of rebellion. And as you said, he later serves as Shah Jahan's prime minister. The other Shirazi brother, Abdel Haq, was neither a military man nor an administrator. He was a calligrapher. And he arrived at the court in Agra just at the time Jahangir was making additions to the funerary complex of his father Akbar. And this included a monumental gateway. So Abdel Haq is commissioned to compose a Persian peon of praise to Akbar, which is then rendered into elegant calligraphy carved into the gateway and signed rather prominently by Abdel Haq. So that work on the gateway at Akbar's tomb is completed in 1613, at which point Abdel Haq disappears from the historical record and doesn't resurface until Shah Jahan ascends the throne. That's when we find his name coming back, and it appears on stamps in books of the Royal Library, books that had been in Jahangir's library, now transferred into Shah Jahan's library. Abdel Haq was at the Royal Court in Burhampur in June of 1631 when Mumtaz died and was undoubtedly part of the team that planned and designed the Taj Mahal, where Mumtaz is, of course, later interred. It was Abdel Haq who was granted the title Amanat Khan, who designed the calligraphy for the extensive inscriptions on the gateway and the mausoleum of the Taj Mahal complex on a scale never seen before. That project 
and many others, including Afzal Khan's mausoleum, would occupy him for the rest of his professional life. That makes absolute sense. Did Edison really take credit for things he didn't invent? Were treadmills originally a form of corporal punishment? And would man have ever got to the moon without the bra? You can expect answers to all these questions and more in the brand new podcast from history hit, patented History of Inventions. Join me, Dallas Campbell, as I uncover what really sparked history's most impactful ideas. Each episode, I'll be recruiting the help of experts, scientists, historians, and even a few real-life inventors. Subscribe to Patented History of Inventions wherever you listen to your podcasts. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So we get to June 1631, as you've just mentioned, and after giving birth to her 14th child, a daughter, Mumtaz Mahal died. And we'll be thinking in just a second about the Taj Mahal as a monument to that grief. But is there any other indications of Shah Jahan's grief? This is where our heartstrings really should be tugged. By all accounts, he was absolutely grief-stricken. There are a number of royal chronicles that document this, and they're consistent in this regard. Even if we allow for some hyperbole and poetic license, the depth of his grief must have been profound. It's actually quite heartbreaking to read them. Even if you read them perhaps a little cynically, they're still just steeped in grief. Apparently for a week, he would not show himself to his subjects. And when he did, it was said that his beard had grayed due to his grief. It was said that he wept so profusely that afterwards he needed eyeglasses to see clearly. And for years, he would just involuntarily break into tears. He had to remain at Burhampur after her death for the better part of a year in order to direct a military campaign. But as soon as he could, he left Burhampur, and as many as five years after her death, he was in the area of Burhampur and completely avoided the palace fortress where she had died because he just couldn't stand the memory of that event. While he was in Burhampur in those months after her death, it said that every Friday night he would cross the river at night and would go to the place where she had been buried and prayed for her. And I suppose above all, the Taj Mahal stands still 
as a monument to that grief. Before we go any further, could you describe it to us? I think many people don't realise that it is not just one building. So often we see photographs of it from a distance and people don't realise that that's not giving away the half of it. The entire Taj Mahal complex is enclosed by a rather high red sandstone wall punctuated by octagonal towers at the corners of the garden and the riverfront terrace. There are gates in this enclosure wall that provide access into an expansive rectangular courtyard. In the center of the Jalaukana's northern side is the monumental Darwaza Irauza, that is the gate of the mausoleum. And one passes through that gateway then into the garden, which is an earthly version of paradise. At the far end of the garden is the mausoleum, entirely of white marble with decorative inlay, what we call pietra dura, and the inscriptions are inlaid black stone. At the four corners of the platform from which the mausoleum rises are four towers or minarets, and they're really critical to the symmetry of the whole design. To the left of the mausoleum is a mosque, and to the right of the mausoleum is the guest house or assembly hall, which really serves to balance the whole design by mirroring the mosque on the other side. It is one of the most exceptionally beautiful buildings in the world, which I suppose is one reason why you've been drawn to spend so much time studying it. Tell us what we know about the process of it being constructed. Certainly. Shah Jahan must have immediately begun plans for her funerary monument. You can imagine he's in the midst of leading a military campaign or directing a military campaign. This horrible death occurs. But apparently, immediately, he starts the planning process. We know that because six months after her death, her body is removed from its burial place in Bohampur and is then taken to Agra. And that took a month to travel from Bohampur to Agra. There, the site for her tomb on the banks of the Yamuna River was already being prepared to receive her remains. Undoubtedly, it was during that initial planning process at Burhampur that Abdel Haq was asked to serve as the calligrapher. Work proceeded rather quickly because by 1638-1639, Abdel Haq's calligraphy in the central chamber of the mausoleum has already been completed. But, of course, the longest inscriptions, that is, on the exterior of the mausoleum, still had to be done, and the other buildings within the complex had to be completed, as well as the garden. So we know that the complex was effectively completed by the 12th Urs, or the anniversary of her death in 1643, although work continued on the inscriptions of the gateway until 1647. Now, we have to imagine throughout this time, hundreds of people working on the complex. There were the people who were hauling the stone, putting the stone in place. And then you had the artisans who were attending to the details, the delicate relief in the white marble and in the red sandstone, the delicate inlay, the waterworks, the channels of water in the garden with the fountains, and then the gardeners themselves. So it was a buzz of activity for many years. You mentioned there the calligraphy, and you've spent much time working on these. So I want to spend some of our time thinking about them too. These inscriptions themselves are works of art. Can you tell us what they look like? And also, how hard are they to read? The calligraphy is, as a whole, indeed, a work of art. And unfortunately, most people who visit the Taj just walk right on by. The inscriptions are all inlaid stone. So wherever you see this beautiful calligraphy, it is black stone that has been inlaid into the white marble. So it was an incredibly intricate process. It was an enormous undertaking and required extraordinary skill, both from Abdel Haq, who designs the calligraphy, but think of the humble stone cutter who is 
carving the channels into the white marble to receive the black inlet. So all of these inscriptions comprise chapters or what we call surahs from the Quran in Arabic and are rendered into a style of calligraphy that we call thulith and then arranged rather beautifully into an intricate and decorative design. It does take a little bit of practice, but to people who know the surahs of the Quran by heart, it's not terribly difficult to find your way through that inscription in spite of the decorative design. Yes, that makes sense. So that the Arabic is in itself, if you can pick out one or two words, then you've got the clue to what it is that you're reading because you know the text. Now, it seems amazing to me, but these inscriptions have really been largely overlooked in research on the Taj Mahal. And so you have done this incredible job, not only of identifying them all, deciphering them, translating them, but also interpreting them. And your analysis of these Quranic texts that were inscribed on the Taj Mahal suggests something else about the monument, that it isn't just only a monument to Mumtaz Mahal, but also to Shah Jahan's Islamic faith. So could you give us some examples of the surahs that are there and what they tell us about that faith? Yeah, there's quite a bit of text here. So we have 14 complete surahs and assorted other verses. So we're talking about 240 ayah or verses from the Qur'an. I think taken as a whole, we can look at these surahs and say that they were selected undoubtedly in consultation between Shah Jahan and Amanit Khan, and spoke to Shah Jahan's understanding of God. And so if we look at the big picture of the content of these surahs, they speak of a God who is most compassionate and merciful, almighty and all-knowing, singular in his sovereignty, the creator of the cosmos, who gives life and brings death, and raises to life again. A God who judges people not according to their religious affiliation or gender, but according to their awareness of God's eternal presence and their deeds that flow from it. This is God, Allah, who demands not only faith expressed in prayer, but in action, but faith in action. Caring for the poor, the orphaned, the hungry, God whose justice is not capricious, but is compassionate and consistent, allowing the righteous to enjoy eternal life in a luminescent garden of unfathomable beauty. And the wicked who suffer the consequences of their willful recalcitrance in a fiery punishment or purification. God who revealed his will and wisdom and sacred scripture to his messengers, Moses, Jesus, Muhammad, and many others named and unnamed in the Quran. I think these are the essentials of Islam expressed by the inscriptions of the Taj. I think they capture very well Shah Jahan's faith. Of course, this is a snapshot of Shah Jahan's faith in the 1630s when these surahs are selected for the Taj. His faith, though, of course, is an evolving one. And so in the final chapter of my book, I look at his spiritual pursuits later in life. You have also suggested that the inscriptions can speak to us about Shah Jahan's experience as emperor and the events of his reign. How so? I'll give you an example that I think is especially evident it's in Surat al-Duha, which is the 93rd surah of the Qur'an, and it's inscribed on the north side of the Great Gate. And it would have been intended to be seen by a person as they exit the entire complex. In part, al-Duha reads, Your Lord has not forsaken you, nor does he hate you. And truly, the future will be better for you than the past. And truly your Lord will give to you and you will be pleased. Did he not find you an orphan and shelter you? And he found you wandering and he guided you. And he found you in need and he enriched you. 
Now, I think when we consider Shah Jahan's life, his experiences, he must have seen himself in that text, given his own travails. We need only recall that at the peak of his popularity, he fell from grace in the eyes of his father, who wouldn't even mention him by name and only refer to him as the wretch. For five years, he fled the imperial armies, again traveling thousands of miles, crisscrossing the empire. It's not difficult to imagine that Shah Jahan thought of himself as orphaned, as hated, and in need during those years. This sort of really speaks to his own experience in its original context. It's referring to the Prophet Muhammad, who experienced a period of silence in which he thought that God had rejected him. But you can read this through the lens of Shah Jahan's life and see that it must have spoken to him about his own experiences. And then comes the terrible loss of Mumtaz. So after all of these struggles to secure the throne, within a few years, Mumtaz dies we can only imagine on his visits to the Taj Mahal, Shah Jahan looking up at the gateway with a heavy heart and reading God's assurance to him, surely the future will be better for you than the past. So, Michael, then, after everything we've talked about, how now should we think of the Taj Mahal? Should we think of it as a monument to love or to faith or power? And what... Does your reading, and in this case, like literally reading of the Taj Mahal, mean for how we should think of its builder, Shah Jahan? Certainly in the great output of resources and the magnificent design of transcendent beauty, there is real testimony to the great love that Shah Jahan had for Mumtaz. Obviously, he could have built for her a much smaller tomb, a much simpler funerary monument, but he chose to do something quite different. And this is quite clearly built for her. The positioning of her cenotaph and her burial is central to the monument. His cenotaph and grave are shunted off to the side. She is central to the monument. This is her tomb first and foremost of all, which then later receives his remains when he dies. So love is definitely a part of it, I think, without question. But I think the inscriptions, the extent of those Quranic texts and the content of those texts are especially to Shah Jahan's Islamic faith. And that's a faith that I believe he approached sincerely but lived imperfectly. The Taj Mahal could not have been built without Shah Jahan wielding great power, obviously. The power to conduct those kinds of resources. But I think it really is the place where he opens his heart and soul as a sincere believer, but as a flawed one. I think he understood that he was a flawed believer. When we look at the whole of his religious and spiritual life, particularly from the Taj Mahal to the end of his life, we see someone who was an ardent searcher. He really wanted to very deliberately tread the Sufi path and was keenly aware of his own sins and his shortcomings. Late in his reign, he assembled an album of paintings and calligraphy and on the frontispiece of that album is a prayer which I think best expresses his spiritual landscape towards the end of his life. And I use it actually at the beginning of my book. And this is the prayer. O oh God, if you do not shepherd me, I am lost. If you shepherd me, then I cannot go astray. O oh God, if I make a mistake out of ignorance, I implore you for forgiveness even before 
it has vexed anyone. What a wonderful thing to write at the beginning of a book <laughs> and also to give us an indication of the faith of Shah Jahan. Thank you so much for your time. I would urge those who've been intrigued by our conversation to pick up a copy of your new book, The Language of the Taj Mahal, Islam, Prayer and the Religion of Shah Jahan, which has just been published. And I want to thank you for joining us and giving us that wonderful explanation and insight into a fascinating story. It makes me long to go and see the Taj Mahal again. And also, it does seem that the story of Shah Jahan is something that filmmakers really ought to pick up, don't you think? I think it makes for a great story on so many levels. Just think of this lovely conversation that we've had in I thank you for your questions and the conversation. What an amazing life. What a beautiful culture when we look at the whole Mughal period. And I would urge someone to take up that torch and it would make for a terrific film. It certainly would. And the complexity of a character of a man who is happy to murder his brothers, but then builds this extraordinary monument to his faith and his love would be a wonderful thing to see explored dramatically. So filmmakers if you're listening please take heed michael it's been wonderful to talk to you thank you thank you very much i appreciate it and thank you so much for listening to not just the tudors we now have almost a hundred podcasts that we've created since last april all available for you to listen to again or even discover for the first time wherever you get your podcasts Take a moment, if you would, to rate the podcast wherever you listen to it, including on Spotify. It really helps new listeners find the show, and we want to spread the Tudor, and not just the Tudor, love. And you can also have your additional weekly booster jab with our Tudor Tuesday newsletter, with news of History Hit's best podcasts, articles, and films. Find out more at historyhit.com. History is full of extraordinary people, the Tudors being just a handful. In my latest film on History Hit, we meet Bess of Hardwick and go inside the incredible house that she built, a house that defines the elegance and grandeur of the Elizabethan age, a house fit for a woman who climbed to the top of the Tudor social ladder. To find out more about the life of Bess and many more fascinating figures from the past, sign up via the link in the description with the code TUDORS for an exclusive discount.